With that, I want to remind us of our mission. Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. So we're going to continue in our series. We've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. That's what the book of Romans is about, how God can take sinful human beings and make them fit for heaven. How does that happen? So if you would, if you brought your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be at verses 17 through 29 this morning, a sermon I'm calling Unmasking a Religious Hypocrite. Kind of a deep, deep subject on this Super Bowl Sunday, so there you go. But before we get into this text, before we really jump into what the second half of Romans chapter 2 is about, I want to bring us up to speed with what we've studied so far. In the opening sentences of the book of Romans, Paul tells us about the good news. The good news is that there is a gospel, and that's exactly what the word gospel means. It means good news. Well, in order to understand the good news, you really have to understand the bad news. The bad news is that we're all sinners. Every single one of us, every man, woman, and child, we are sinners. And our sin, it separates us from God. And what we've earned, the wage of sin for being sinners, is eternity in hell separated from God. Bad news. You're like, this is not a good sermon so far, Pastor John. Well, the good news is that God loves you. He really loves you. In fact, he loves you so much he sent his one and only son on a rescue mission to die in your place. And so that is great news. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul set out to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that God exists. He says that you can look at the sun and the stars and the moon. You can look at the, the grass and the field and the birds and you know there's a God. Everybody's without excuse. And then he goes on to say that he put a conscience in you. And so because you have a conscience, you know there is a God. And so because of that, you're accountable to him. But at the same time, you refuse to worship God. You wanted to worship everything under the sun other than God. And so God gave people up to themselves. And when God gives you up to yourself, bad things happen. It's a bad, dark road when that happens. Well, that's Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul fires a shot at the very religious people. That there are people that stick their noses so high in the air they can catch rainwater. That's, that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at. These are these guys. People become very self-righteous because they look at their religion and they, 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 they think this makes them self-righteous in the eyes of God. But let me tell you, self-righteousness will get you about as far into heaven as belief that there is no God. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what he's talking about here in Romans chapter 2. So Paul has told the very unreligious person, hey, there is a God and you're accountable to him. And now Paul's addressing the religious person. The, the, The person that would say, hey, I agree with you, Paul, that there's a God and you need to smoke the unreligious person. And so Paul says, hey, you religious hypocrite. I'm coming at you too because you're trusting in your religion rather than God. And Paul wants a religious hypocrite to know that it's just as detestable to worship a false religion to point to these religious practices other than God. Paul knows his audience. It's like Paul knows that there's going to be blowback for what he said in Romans chapter 2. Paul knows that they're going to start pointing to the good things about the religion. Hey, I do this, I do that, I do all this religious acts, so therefore God must accept me, right? Look in Romans 2, verse 25. Paul says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. 
The word value in the Greek, it means exactly what you think it means. Okay, it means to gain something. So what Paul is doing here, he's saying, he's showing the assets of being religious, and he's going to show us the deficits. And so in the end, he's going to show the net appraisal of a religious hypocrite. So in in Romans chapter 1, Paul addresses the raunchy crowd, the heathens. You know, you've, you've heard the old saying, people ask, usually your mom said this when you left the door open, hey, were you raised in a barn? Well, Romans chapter 1 doesn't address people that were raised in a barn as much as they were raised in a bar. Well, Romans chapter 2 doesn't address those who've been raised in a bar, but those who are raised in church, right? Romans chapter 2 is written to the self-righteous religious hypocrite. You ever heard somebody say, hey, there's nothing but hypocrites down at church? Well, Paul might agree with that to some point. The hypocrite that Paul's outlining for us here in Romans chapter 2, they're ones that really trust in their religion. They trust in what they have done. They trust in some ceremony, some keeping of these laws or avoiding certain taboos. That's who Paul is addressing this to. Now think about this. They probably really look the part. They probably have all the vocabulary. But in the end, they have not accepted the gospel. They're an unsaved person that is really disguised to look like a saved person. Paul would describe them as a person having the appearance of godliness but denying the power. I've heard it referred to as somebody that has a lot in the showcase but nothing in the warehouse. That's who Paul is talking to. They look the part, but the end, they're not real. With that, let's read beginning of verse 17. Paul says... But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know of his will and approve of what's excellent because you are instructed by the law. And if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? Will you practice against, do you, you pre, while will you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. But his praise is not from man, but from God. We know that the Apostle Paul, he, in this section of Scripture, he's writing to those with a Jewish background. And I think Paul does this because he knows that there's going to be objections coming his way for what he said earlier in chapter 2. Remember, Paul wrote the heathens in Romans chapter 1, how they are condemned. 
And now Paul's addressing the religious crowd at the beginning of Romans chapter 2. And it's almost like when we get to verse 17, Paul's anticipating this pushback because of what he just wrote. It's like the Jewish people are going to read the beginning verses of Romans chapter 2 and go, How dare you, Paul? How dare you lump us together with those heathens? Don't you know we are God's chosen people? We are the special people of God. Look at verse 17 again. But if you call yourselves a Jew, the Jewish nation is God's chosen people. I would say they took pride in that, as they probably should. The term Jew is shortened from the name Judah. It, it, the, the Judah is one of the tribes of Israel. If you, if you know your Old Testament, uh, God chose a man. He called him by the name of Abram. Eventually, he changes his name to Abraham. Well, Abraham has two sons, the second which was a, was a man by the name of Isaac. And Isaac had uh, two sons, one of which was Jacob. Well, Jacob goes on to have 12 sons. And the, the, the 12 sons, the fourth oldest, was a man by the name of Judah. And that, that, that is where the Jewish people get their names. Well, well the, after the reign of Solomon, there's essentially a civil war. And the nation of Israel is split into two. During the times of, of Jesus, we often think of Israel as one nation, but really it was two, with uh, Israel being in the, in the north and Judah being in the south. The name Judah, it means praise to Yahweh. And so the Jewish people really relished in that name. They, they really took pride in that name because out of all the people in the world, God chose the Jews to be his chosen people. Have you ever wondered why? Like, why did God choose the Jews? It's like God has the first round draft pick, first pick overall, and he chose the Jewish people? That doesn't just seem to make sense, though, because think about this. Last year's NFL draft, the first pick overall, number one, went uh, to the Jacksonville Jaguars. And with that, they chose Trevor Lawrence. The last pick overall, it, it's referred to as Mr. Irrelevant. And uh, the, 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 the Mr. Irrelevant title went to a man by the name of Grant Stewart from Georgia with the 256 pick overall. Well, what God did is he's got the first pick, but he chose the last pick, and he took them first, right? Why? Why in the world would God choose the Jews out of over all the other nations of the world? Read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Word of God says, It's not because you were more, new, uh, you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God and a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to, to a thousand generations. So God did not choose the Jews to be his chosen people because they were the biggest or strongest or most awesome. No. God chose the Jews because God is the biggest. God is the strongest. God is the most awesome. You see, only God can take somebody as stubborn and weak as the Jews and keep them because all the people around the, the Israel are going to try to kill them, and only God can keep them. So really what God is doing, he's showing off how awesome and how loving and how faithful he is by choosing the Jews to be his people. 
And so the Jewish people are God's chosen people, but that makes some of the Jews really rest in their heritage for salvation. There's many Jews that believe that just simply being Jewish make them fit for heaven. Well, in the Gospels, John the Baptist, he's down the River Jordan. He's dunking people, and there's these religious guys that come out to check out what he's doing. They're the the Pharisees and the scribes, and he sees them coming. And John's not a guy to really pull his punches with his words, and he sees him coming, and this is what he says, Matthew 7, verse, excuse me, Matthew 3, verse 7. He says, you brood of vipers. I just love that. John calls them a pile of snakes right from the get-go. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our fathers. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children for Abraham. In other words, what John is saying, don't rest in the fact that you're a Jew and say that makes you fit for heaven. Because God can take rocks and turn them into God's chosen people if he wants to. So there's people that are just resting and simply of what their parents said as their means of salvation. Did you know Christians do that all the time? There's people that claim to be Christians just because simply their parents were Christians. The same really can be said for Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or Mormons. There's so often that some people claim a faith that really they have no following to only simply because that's what their parents did. But Paul is saying, well, at least the Jewish people have the right background. He's going to say, so it's not totally useless. Look what Paul says, verse 17 again. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what's excellent because you're instructed by the law. Do you hear what what he's saying? Paul is saying, you know what's the excellent thing about being a Jew? Because you've been instructed by the law. Paul's saying, hey guys, at least you got the right books. The Jewish people were given the law. From God to a man by, by the name of Moses. And Moses wrote, wrote the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I have to sing it. That makes me help me remember it. But anyway, so they, they have the first five books. And then they have another 34 books too. So they have all of the Old Testament. And, and God gave his chosen people the, his word so they would know how to live and, and really what he expected of them. And so what happened was all the good Jewish parents, they would, they would teach their children the, the word of God. They would actually make them memorize something called, they called the Shema. The Shema is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. Look, it says, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That sounds like some New Testament stuff there, doesn't it? Verse 6, and these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk about them when you sit in your, in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and on the frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your, of your gate, on, the, on your house and your gates." 
That's some good stuff right there. I think everybody should memorize that, that the Lord is one and he wants you to love him with all the heart and soul and mind. And so what happened was every Jewish parent not only memorized that, but they made their kids memorize that. They'd be able to recite that. And the Jewish people took this so seriously that they would take what they called a mezuzah. A mezuzah is a little wooden box. In fact, I have one in my office. And, and they put it on the doorpost of their house. And inside the mezuzah is a little, little scroll, if you will. And on that scroll is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when they would walk through their house, they would touch a mezuzah. It's, to, it's a symbol to remind them to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength, right? I saw a documentary not too long ago. And it was, it was kind of showing uh, what a prison looks like in Israel. I thought it was terribly ironic because every jail cell door, there's a mezuzah. And as the, as the, the inmates walk in and out of their jail cell, they, they touch the mezuzah. They just tap it to remind them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Even while the crimes they committed that put them in prison prove they don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind, right? They're being hypocrites. <laughs> well, the Shema says to bind these words on your hand and on your head. Well, the devout Jewish rabbis, they took this so seriously that if you, you could go to Israel today or parts in our country and you could see in their big robes and they have these wooden boxes between their eyes. It's called phylacteries and the wrists too. And in these phylacteries are the Shema. And it reminds them to love the Lord your God with all your heart and so much. So they put these little reminders on their head to do that, but they're not doing it. You see, what God wants is so much more than just to put a scroll on a doorway or a box on your, on your head. The truth is he wants all of you. And Paul is, is acknowledging in, in Romans chapter 2, he's like, hey, you, you might be doing it wrong, but at least you got the right book. That's what he's saying. But let's bring it back home. What about us? What about the Christians? Because we have the 39 books of the Old Testament, Right? We have the 39 books of the Old Testament, but then we have 27 more. We have the, the writings of Jesus' best friends and two of his brothers. We have the firsthand eyewitness accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have all the, the writings of the apostle Paul. We have the full revelation of God. And then we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, guiding us, and telling us what to do. I would say we have more light than the Old Testament Jew. And I want to say, as far as the average person sitting in church, if you've been coming to church, let's say for a year, maybe two years, maybe you've been going to a Bible study for a year or two, you have a better working knowledge of our Bibles than many men that are leading churches in other, in other countries. And I'm sure those guys would love and come to sit in a place like this and study for an hour and a half the Word of God in a small group Bible study, but they don't have time because they're too busy leading people to Jesus. So the truth is, we have a lot, and we're, we're responsible people. Look at verse 19. It says, And if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see, God's original design for his chosen people is that they would be exporters of spiritual truth, right? That's what God meant when he told Abraham, he says, hey, in you all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. 
That word nations is where we get the word ethne in the Greek. It means all the ethnic people. You're to bless every people with every skin color you can imagine. They're going to be blessed through you. And so God's chosen people are God's responsible people. Because we're chosen, we are then responsible, right? It's like the line from the Spider-Man movie. You know the Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, that's the Jewish people. They had a job to do, and their job was to be an ambassador of truth to the world. Paul is saying, since they've been instructed, they are to instruct. Since they've been taught, they are to teach. Since they've been enlightened, they are to enlighten the whole world about God, right? Look in Isaiah chapter 46, excuse me, 42, verse 6. It says, the word of God says, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. And I will take you by the hand and keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to for the nations. Do you hear? So God's chosen people in the Old Testament, they are very clearly told by God, you are the light for all the nations. Okay, now keep that in mind. Keep that on, on the side table. And let me, let me jump to the New Testament. And let's read something that Jesus told his followers on one occasion. Matthew 5, verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Do you see the connection? In the Old Testament, God tells his chosen people, you're a light to the world. And now he's saying it again in the New Testament. You see, we are a people that are called by God to come and tell lost people about a great God who loves them. It's not we're just to come here and hear an interesting speech for 42 minutes. I know how long I preach. I time this. And then, then run out the door and try to make it to the Mexican food restaurant before the Lutherans get there. Right? That's not what we're doing here. Hopefully I'm stepping on some toes. You know, to have a great fellowship, I, I love that. We can have great fellowship. We can have fun. We can sing great worship songs. We can come to these Bible studies and, and read all that God has for us and how he wants us to live and, and study and, and talk about this. We can listen to great sermons. I listen to a lot of sermons. There's nothing wrong with that. But Christians have a job to do. And so if you belong to God, if you've been called to him, if you are reborn, if you've been born again, if you've been redeemed, then your job is to go tell others about him. Did you know God wants a big family? He does. He wants to grow his family. And God wants to grow his family through you. In these verses, verse 17, 18, 19, 20... Paul's been really kind of laying it on. He's been telling the religious people about the good things about being a Jew. Hasn't exactly sugarcoated, but Paul's about to keep it real. He's going to keep it real with God's chosen people. Paul, he's about to list, hey, here's where you're really getting it wrong, guys. He's going to list the bad practices that the Jewish people continue to practice even though they are God's chosen people. Picture, if you will, you're the foreman on a job site, okay? Huge, massive building going up. And you've given your workers, here's what I want you to do. Now go do your job. And those workers go and do everything under the sun other than the job that you've given them to do. How would that go? 
Not well, right? Well, fortunately, this foreman doesn't fire the construction worker. He's just going to basically put him in timeout. Read verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Do you get the right, do you get the drift? He Paul's saying, hey, you got the right book. Okay, we got that right. Got the right book, but the problem is you don't do it. They are practicing what they preached. They got the right beliefs, but they got the wrong behavior. This would be like a policeman that just loves to write speeding tickets, but then when he gets his own car, speeds all the time. This would be like a fire arson investigator who's running around town lighting all the fires. In 1991, there was a fire captain and arson investigator by the name of John Leonard Orr of Pasadena, California, and he was arrested. you know why? He was the guy that was lighting the fires. That's the Jewish people here in Romans chapter 2. So Paul is giving this spiritual spreadsheet, if you will. He's saying, hey guys, you got the right profession, uh, profession but you got the wrong practice. There's a church in uh, Lubeck, Germany. It's a Lutheran cathedral. And as you walk in, there's this in, um, engraving on the wall. And the engraving reads like this. It says, thus speaketh Christ. Our Lord to us. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light, but you see me not. You call me the way, but you walk me not. You call me the life, but you live me not. You call me wise, but you follow me not. You call me fair, but you love me not. You call me eternal, yet you seek me not. You call me noble, but you serve me not. You call me gracious. But you trust me not. You call me might, but honor me not. You call me just, but you fear me not. And so if I condemn you, then blame me not. Did that one sting a little? That one sounds a lot like something I remember Jesus saying once. Found in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things I tell you great question right why do you say lord lord but then there's no follow-through in what you're doing it's like you you're so high and pompous you not even say lord once you say it twice but then there's no action behind that title that just doesn't jive pastor kyle eideman he wrote a book and a bible study a long time ago it was called uh, not a fan well, in it, he suggests that there's so many so-called followers of Christ that aren't really followers of Christ. He says they're just fans of Christ. It's like if Jesus really did have a Facebook page and he had an Instagram account, we'd follow him. We'd like what he said, maybe even share it, retweet something that he said. But then we would never be in a follower in such a way that what the Lord said would actually change our life. To, to look at what Jesus said to do and actually live our life like that? No way. That's too hard. I'm not going to do it. Well, that's what the Jewish people are doing. And the truth is we do the same thing. We have a lot of vocabulary, but very little action to follow up the words we say. So the Jewish people, they've got the wrong practice 
And what happens is this leads to a bad reputation. Did you know if you're living a hypocritical lifestyle, people are going to know? Do you think maybe in a small town USA, people know if you're being a hypocrite? I think they do. And what happens is it's going to give you a bad reputation. But not only is it going to give you a bad reputation, but it's going to give a bad reputation to the God you follow. Look at verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Let me translate what the Apostle Paul just said. Hey, there's unbelievers that are bad-mouthing God, and it's your fault. That's what Paul is saying. Why? Because you're a hypocrite. You see, when a believer is living a hypocritical life, God is the one that gets bad-mouthed. That a hypocrite gives, the, gives God a black eye. So the, keep it in context here. Paul is talking to Jewish people. And the, the Jewish people just really pride themselves. Oh, we're God's chosen people. And because they're God's chosen people, this is what they do. They dress different and they talk different. They cut their hair different. They even eat different, right? They worship different. That's what they do. And yet they're living in such a way that the Gentiles are saying, why would I want to believe in that God? Look at what God's so-called chosen people are doing. And we do the same thing. When we're gossiping, when we're slandering, when we're just being mean to people, we give God a black eye. Our actions and the way we live our lives absolutely matters because there's unbelievers that are watching. And when we don't walk the walk and just talk the talk, they blaspheme our God. You know, if you know your Old Testament, if I was to say the name King David, I think most of us go, King David, that's David and Goliath, one of my favorite stories. But if I say David and Bathsheba, you're like, ugh. You know the story I'm about to tell. Well, if you don't know, let me just kind of rehatch the story that there was a day when David should have been out with his guys, should have been leading in a battle, but David took a day off, took a PTO day when he shouldn't be taking a PTO day, and he looks out his window and sees a beautiful woman bathing. He sees what he likes, and he calls her. And there's a lot of debate. Hey, did, was Bathsheba, what, did she know that he could see her? Listen, I've been there. They build one house on top of the other like a staircase. And girls, if you're taking a bath, you know if someone could see you, right? Well, anyways, he, he calls for her. He takes her. They have an affair, and there's a child conceived. Then David... Uh, lies to cover up the adultery and then he has to murder to cover up the, the lie to cover up the adultery and then he has to lie to cover the lie to cover the murder to cover the adultery you see where I'm going with this it's like the old woman that swallowed the spider to catch the fly I don't know why she swallowed the fly I guess she's gonna die that's David well eventually Nathan the prophet he he went to David and he called the king on the carpet because the king had zero remorse, he had zero repentance, and he points his finger, and David goes, you're the guy. You're the guy. You sinned before God, and David cries out and confesses, and he basically says, hey, you're the head of God's people, and you did this, and the enemies of God are going to point their finger at, the, at God and go, why would we want to follow his God? Look what he did. You know, we should know... When we sin, we ruin our witness. When we, when we fall into sin, when we don't really live out the Christian life, it gives God a black eye. 
And then the unsaved world will be, will justifiably ridicule believers in the name of God. They're going to say, you know, you're always telling me to place faith in Jesus, to repent and live for Jesus, but why should I? You don't. You know, did you know you can have the right information and the wrong practices? And that leads to a bad reputation. What happens, it actually hurts the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is impacted by our bad behavior. Did you know that? Paul explains it. Look in verse 25. He says, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is, who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code of circumcision but break the law. Right? Are you reading this? So circumcision, it's an outward sign of what's supposed to be an inward change. That's what it's supposed to be. You know, we don't do that here because we're a New Testament church. God gave us two ordinances. He gave us communion and baptism. Aren't you glad he didn't give us three? That would make the altar call really awkward at the end, right? <laughs> okay, one person thought that was funny. Come on, that's hilarious. At the age of eight days old, every Jewish male was, was circumcised. They, they cut away the foreskin off his member, and it's a sign. It's a covenant uh, that says it's supposed to be of an an outward sign of an inward change saying, I belong to God. But here's the deal. The ritual of circumcision was supposed to point to the reality that I'm a God follower. But often it, it, it didn't play out that way. Now, it was very effective to keep Jewish males to go into Greek bathhouses because the Jewish guy shows up at the Greek bathhouse and go, hey, you're not supposed to be here, right? So they did have that effect. But circumcision is supposed to be saying, hey, I'm a follower of God. I'm committed. But if you have the ritual of circumcision that points to reality that I'm a follower of God, but if you don't do it, then you just have an empty ritual. Paul says, hey, it means nothing. You might as well not even do it. It has no value in it. It's only valuable if you're actually following God. So what's happened is the Jewish people were pointing to the ritual they're saying, hey, we did this ritual. That's a substitute to, for my obedience, right? The ritual of circumcision became like a magic charm. It became an insurance policy. It was fire insurance, a get-out-of-hell-free card because they did that. Because they weren't following God. They had the ritual as a crutch that allowed them to say, hey, I'm a follower of God because I did this thing, but I'm not really following God. Then it's just an empty ritual. Why even do it? It's, it's, it's meaningless. It's empty. Look at verse 25 again. Paul says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. He's saying it's worthless if you're not going to follow through with what it actually means. Listen to how God says it in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 10 verse 15 the word of God says, yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chosen their offspring after them. You above all people, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. God's saying, hey, I don't just want the ritual. 
I want the heart that's behind the ritual. God's saying, hey, I want your heart in it. I want the spirit in it. I want all of you in it. I, I don't just want you to go some ritual. I would say it's a lot like a wedding ring. I've got my wedding ring. I, I wear mine all the time. And, and I love these silicone wedding rings because I can wear mine all the time. I have my gold one at home, but I never wear it. But this one, I wear all the time. And I think my wife likes that I wear this wedding ring. And she really likes what it symbolizes. Because by me wearing this wedding ring, I'm telling the whole world, I'm taken. Don't flirt with me, ladies, because I'm taken. I belong to somebody. That's what this is saying. You know what she really, really likes? She likes the reality behind this ring, right? What if she had to choose? She doesn't. But what if she had to choose? Is she going to choose no ring and, and, and faithfulness or unfaithfulness with a ring? I've never talked to her about this, but I'm going to go ahead and speak for her. She's going to want the faithfulness, right? That's what she's going to want. Well, fortunately for her, she doesn't have to choose. I've chosen for her. She gets the ring and faithfulness. That's what she, got, she gets. That's what God wants. Why in the world would we make him choose? Hey, I'll do the ritual, but I'm not going to be obedient. Or I'll be obedient, but I'm not going to do the ritual. I think he wants both. Now, today we don't circumcise. That's a Jewish thing. Because sometimes Christians do get circumcised. It has more to do with cleanliness than anything else. But if you want to do it, that's fine. We don't circumcise, but we baptize. Every Sunday I say, hey, you want to get baptized? Let's talk about this. Let's see about this. Let's see if, if, if that's right for you. Does God want you to be baptized? Yeah, I think he does. Does God want you to be faithful? Yes, I know he does. Does God want both? Yeah. Why in the world would we make him choose? This isn't an either or. This is a both and situation. And I think we could say the same thing for church membership. If God doesn't want you to be a member of a church, why did he give us the church? We see this in Acts chapter 2. So I think he wants us to be members. I think he wants us to be baptized. And he definitely wants us to be faithful. Here's the thing. God wants you, all of you. You know, it, it, it might just be inward. And that, that's what he wants. And what, it's what's outward. It's not always the same thing. And Paul notices the difference. Look in verse 28 of Romans chapter 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outward. Nor circumcision outward and physical. Paul is saying to the Jews that if you circumcise but your heart's not in it, it's all for nothing. And I'd say the same could be tr- said for about a Christian's baptism. If you came forward in church and you got dunked and you went right back to your decrepit lifestyle, then all you did was took a bath. You came to church and got wet. Big deal. You know, I think because so many so-called Christians do that, often there's people that say, I can be just as good a Christian at home without going to church. I can never get baptized. And you don't have to go to church. You don't have to get baptized. Let me tell you, it doesn't hurt. (laughs) In fact, it does help. That's what Paul is saying. Not only does it not hurt, but there's value in these things. We don't do these things for no good reasons. That's what Paul says. Just like the negative has negative consequences, the positive has positive consequences. Look at verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You know, there's only one person you need approval for. It's not your wife, it's not your husband, it's not your kids, it's not your employer. 
It's not your spouse. It's not your, your, your neighbor. It's not your pastor. One person's God. Because in the end, God's the one that's approved. He approves or disapproves. And he sometimes approves and he disapproves of the things we do. But in the end, he's the one that judges. We talked about this last week in the beginning of Romans chapter 2. Because who you are, I mean, who you really are, God knows. Because God knows you the best. So in the end, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. It only matters what God thinks. And he's either going to approve and honor and praise the life you live, or he's going to disapprove, dishonor, not praise the life you live. But when you live your life as a believer, I mean, really live it? You're living it out to the fullest, and, and you're living your life for Jesus? I think, I think it honors God. And it brings God, God, God will actually praise the life you live. So let me sum up where we're at so far in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, God essentially says there's no one so bad that they cannot be saved. And then Romans chapter 2, he says there's no one so good that they need not be saved. That's what he's saying. I love Romans so far that there's no one so bad they can't be saved and no one so good that they don't need saved. The truth is the heathen and the religious people, we all need Jesus We all need the grace of God. Those that never stepped into a church and those that were born in church, we all need the grace of God. Everybody needs the gospel. Everyone needs the grace of God in order to be saved. You know, I see something kind of happening. This probably happens thousands, tens of thousands of times a day. I don't know, but somebody who spent a lot of time in church, they die and they, they go to heaven. And I know you're judged in a moment, but I think maybe there's that nanosecond or something where you're standing there and you're maybe thinking about all the, the time you spent, hours spent going to church and singing songs and reading scripture and money you tithed and maybe even went on a mission trip and did great things for, for God. And then the sentence comes down. And the sentence is guilty. What? Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It takes an intimate, personal knowledge, relationship with Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And I would say, you know what's probably even more important than what we know about Jesus? But what he knows about us, right? Because he knows the heart. He knows who's being the hypocrite and who's the real deal. You know, I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I can tell you about it. Did you know in high school he got cut from the high school basketball team? He did. Look it up. Uh, he went to, well, I can tell you where he went to college. I can tell you all these facts about what happened with his professional career in Chicago Bulls. I've saw, I saw him play a couple times. I never met the man. I, I don't really know him, and probably more importantly, he doesn't know me. If you ever had the chance to meet Michael Jordan, here's the question I want you to ask him. Go, hey, what do you think of Pastor John? You know he's going to say? Who? That's what he's going to say. Don't know him. My question is, do you know Jesus? Do you really know Jesus? Or is this just empty rituals to you? In Romans chapter 2, Paul is unmasking the religious hypocrite. You know, the person that looks so good on the end, and outside, but on the inside, they're just dead. 
1922, there was a man by the name of Howard Carter. He was a British archaeologist. He, he made this discovery. as one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in the history of time. He found the tomb of King Tut. You can go to the, the Grand Egyptian Museum in Cairo if you want to see it. There's all kinds of artifacts that are there. Well, when Howard Carter found a great burial case, he found the sarcophagus of King Tut. And the sarcophagus was huge. This big casket-looking thing with, with gems all over. It was ornate. It was beautiful. Well, they, they took the lid off of that, and inside there was a, that sarcophagus is a smaller casket. It was made out of wood that was laid with gold leaf over the top of that. And then they opened that one, and there was a solid gold casket inside that casket, and it was gorgeous. In fact, if you go to the museum, that's the one that's on display. And then they opened that solid gold casket, and inside that casket, they saw the burial mask. It was this mask made out of solid gold and jewels. If you, ever, if you Google King Tut, that's the image you're probably going to come up on your phones. And they took that mask off of him, and under that, there was a golden robe of sorts. And they, they took off the golden robe. You know what was under, under the golden robes? An old, leathery, withered, dead guy. Can you see where I'm going with this? You can look beautiful on the outside, but the inside still be dead. We can wear masks. We can be a hypocrite all day long, but God knows what's inside. My question is, does God like what's on the side of you? He doesn't repent. Turn from your sins. Cry out to Jesus. The Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God that no one can boast. No one can, can stand before God and go, look how good I am. God has to save me. That's never happened. But those that recognize that they're a sinner and cry out to him, he will save. There must be this moment of contrition where you recognize, I am a sinner. I am not in a right standing with God. And you cry out to him. For most people, it's through a prayer. Something like this where you say, dear God, I'm a sinful person. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this name of Jesus Christ. Amen.